Let's read 1 Corinthians 1.18 to 2.5. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of the world of God, the world through its wisdom did not know Him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before Him. It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony of God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. My name's Sam, if you haven't met me before. I uh, am a regular up here. I haven't been here for the last couple of weeks. Been on holidays, which has been nice. Been good to get away. Um, what we're going to start with today is the Gruen Transfer. I don't know if anyone's seen the Gruen Transfer on TV, an ABC show. It has this segment each week in it called The Pitch. And in the pitch, they kind of put two ad agencies against one another and they have to come up with an ad to sell the unsellable. Now imagine you work for a town called Asbestos. This is a real place in Canada, a small town. Imagine you are the head of the tourism department. How do you get people to visit Asbestos? Well, here is uh, what the pitch came up with.
Now, as I, as I watch these videos, and I need to confess, it took me a little bit of time to get out of the, the, uh, the YouTube page that this was on. I spent a little while lingering there for too long trying to find my way into these videos. But as I've watched the pitch over the years, I often wonder, what would they do with the message of Christianity? If they were given the challenge of selling the message of the cross, what would they do? How would they approach it? Because we kind of have an image problem as Christians. And the image problem is not what you might imagine it to be. It's not just that we meet in manky school halls like here at Lambton High. It's not just that our radio stations are, to be honest, pretty average. It's not that we're all dags, right? Because I don't know if you know this, but sandals and socks, Birkenstocks and socks, are back in in a real big way. If you come to our uni church congregation, you'll see them hanging around there. And it's not just that we don't have enough famous Christians like Justin Bieber or Bear Grylls or Steph Curry. Our image problem is the symbol for Christianity. It's that the message that we preach is the message of the cross. Have a look at the way it starts in verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Our big PR issue is that. Now we're going to unpack why that's an issue in a moment or two, but essentially what this passage tells us is three things. Firstly, we have a foolish message. Secondly, that the people who believe this message are fools. And thirdly, the people who proclaim this message do it in a foolish way. But for all of this folly, it really begins at the cross. You see, in the first century, you wouldn't have picked a more foolish, you couldn't have picked a more foolish symbol for Christianity, a Roman crucifix. As the symbol for Christianity, that is a first century public relations nightmare. Now for us, it's not so bad. Lots of people wear crosses these days as jewellery. Every year at Easter, Hillsong very helpfully puts in the sky a cross for us all to see and to give us some sense of the message of the cross, which is awesome. But what this means is the cross has become somewhat sanitised. But if you heard the message of the cross in the first century, it conjures up a whole bunch of different images in our head. Because in Rome, the cross was a symbol of shame. Nothing could be less powerful or wise or winsome than the crucifixion. Why? Well, because only the dregs of society got crucified. Only the lower class, slaves, the lowest types of criminals. People you especially wanted to humiliate in death. Crucifixion was the most horrible, undignified way to die. After you were condemned to be crucified, a number of things happened. You were scourged with a whip of leather thongs that were designed to make you bleed, but not so much that you would die quickly. Then on your blood-soaked back, they would place a wooden cross, a large hunk of timber, and you had to carry it to the place where you would be crucified. And as you went, people would mock you and beat you and kick you with all kinds of impunity because you were a condemned person. Then you were stripped naked. And it struck me this week that, that naked means naked. Right? There's none of this loincloth business that we see in the Jesus movies. It's full-blown nakedness, humiliated for all to see. 
And they laid you on top of, your, of the cross and they fixed your arms to it, often with nails through your wrists. They hoist you high in the air. And under your bottom there would often be a little seat that you sat on under which they bent your legs so that your feet kind of sat sideways underneath your seat. And then they, then they nailed your ankles to the cross and left you to die. But it wasn't quick. It wasn't designed to be quick. Dying by crucifixion took hours, sometimes days. And you died in one of two ways. You either starved to death or you became so weak that you could no longer hold your head up that when it finally slumped forward, you suffocated. Sometimes if you lingered there for a little bit too long, they'd put a spear through your side to hurry you up or they'd, other times they would come along with a club and smash your knees so that you couldn't push yourself up off the cross anymore. Crucifixion was the most humiliating way to die. And if you were a Jew, it was so much worse because you were considered by God to be cursed. In Deuteronomy, uh, God said that no, anybody who would die upon a, upon a tree, anybody who was impaled or crucified, was cursed. And things like this happened in their wars. The defeated leader would impale or crucify someone to humiliate them. And this was a sign of God's curse upon you. It was shameful, degrading and accursed. And this is Paul's message. Paul preaches that the King of the world, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Saviour of humanity, died by crucifixion. It's impossible to pitch. How do you win people to a message with the symbol of shame and humiliation at its very heart? In the first century, the things that would win people over to your worldview were things like wisdom and power. So in verse 22, it says there that the Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. See, the Jews, they, they loved the miracles. They were into these displays of power, which made sense for them because God in the Old Testament did that. The flood, the partying of the Red Sea, the plagues in Egypt, the miracles of Elijah. And, and so, they took, so they looked for miracles because this was a sign for them that God was at work in this person. But not only that, miracles are just, they're pretty impressive, aren't they? What is a miracle that would bring the crowds to Hunter Bible Church? Imagine if today I could turn water into craft beer. <laughs> not to his new, craft beer. Man, this place would be full of Novocastrian hipsters. How easy it would be to draw a crowd. Lunch church with free beer tasting afterwards. Novocastrians would come to that kind of event, right? But the Greeks, they weren't interested so much in miracles, but wisdom. And so they had philosophers like Plato and Aristotle and Socrates and they wrestled with the big questions of life. So any religion that kind of wanted your attention had to appear to be wise. You had to have a podcast and a, and a YouTube channel where you debated with one another, the great thinkers of the day. That is, that is the thing they craved. And of course, the Corinthians came out of this world. They were living in this world. Greek wisdom and Jewish power was part of the air that they breathed. Their, their church was made up of people who had not long converted straight out of these religious and worldview backgrounds. In 1 Corinthians, you can see 
You can see their temptations to, to go back to this, to appear wise and powerful. We saw it last week and over the last couple of weeks in their divisions. I'm a Paul man. I'm an Apollos girl. And what Paul preached just didn't buy into any of that stuff. Have a look in verse 23. We preached Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. So Paul preaches this unsellable message and he doesn't create a pitch, he doesn't skip around the shameful cross, he doesn't offer, offer free craft beer or bring in wise people. He just preaches Christ crucified. And it's so countercultural, so foolish, so shameful that the Jews and the Gentiles of the time, they didn't know what to do with it. It offends their sensibilities. And because of that, it actually divides the world into two. Have a look there in verse 18 again. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us being saved, it's the power of God. So see the division there? There's, there's those, who are being sa- those who are being saved and then there's those who are perishing. We see it again in verse 23. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and, and foolishness, Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so it's no longer Jew and Gentile, it's saved and perishing. For one group, the cross displays the wisdom and the power of God for the other group. They look at it and they think, it's pathetic, it's weak, it's dismal. And in fact, the message of the cross is designed to evoke that response from the world. As they mock the cross, as they mock Jesus, the cross actually makes a mockery of the world's wisdom. Have a look there in verse 20. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Why? Well, since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. See, the world thinks their wisdom means they can work out all there is to know about God on their own. Even if their conclusion is, well, we can't know anything about God. This is what the philosophers of the first century loved to do. They'd sit around and they'd come up with theories about God and the divine being. And and you see the same thing happen today on these YouTube channels and conversations with people like Joe Rogan and and Russell Brandt and Ben Shapiro and Richard Dawkins and Jordan Peterson. They talk about things that are broader than God, obviously. They're seen as very wise in our world. But the wisdom that they possess and, and, and the wisdom that they sprout regarding God and the divine being and whether or not there is a divine being at all is all built on their own knowledge and wisdom. If you like, what they do is they look at the world around them and they deduce things from the world to inform them about God. Now, a really kind of classic and rather simplistic version of this is around the question of suffering. People will look at the world and they'll say, there is suffering, therefore, there is no God. See, this kind of thinking at school, our youth will come across this. 
You see it at work, at university, in the gym, wherever. This is the world's modus operandi. People make up their minds about God, but where does it come from? Where do they get this so-called knowledge? Well, it's their wisdom. It's their own self-proclaimed knowledge. If you like, what they've done is, or the other option is they've gleaned from others who have done the same, worked out for themselves what the divine being is like or isn't like. But God's wisdom is that the world cannot know God through its own intellect and scholarly endeavours. See that there in verse 21? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. I love that. I love that God has made it so that people can't just get to know him by their own wisdom. You can't work out God or know what he's like through science or philosophy or maths or art or history or meditation. Not that any of those things are wrong or to be done away with, or are invaluable. These are all very good things. I'm a big fan of science and medicine this week. This week I found out I had this thing called Bell's palsy. Look it up, it'll freak you out. It's basically just facial drip on one side of your face. Weirdest thing ever. I went to the doctor uh, and they knew what was going on, so they filled me with a whole bunch of drugs to help me to recover. Hopefully I'm speaking okay today, but I was a little worried on Thursday that I wasn't going to be able to speak today because of this facial droop thing that I had. But medicine and science, how, even though it's good, doesn't drag us any closer to knowing God. Little kids can know God, while the university professor can't work out God on their own. Why? Well, the message of the cross is foolishness and it hides the truth from the wise. Have a look there in verse 19. He says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligent of the intelligent, I will frustrate. And and it hides the truth from the wise because they want it to be about them and their wisdom and their knowledge and their understanding. But we can't know God on our own. In order for us to know God, we need Him to make Himself known to us. We need Him to, set, to give us spiritual understanding that allows us to see this foolish message as wisdom and power from God. Christianity is all about revelation. God making Himself known to us. And in doing so, the cross mocks the world, which says, I'm going to work out God for myself. And what appears foolish in the eyes of the world is in reality, wisdom. See the conclusion he draws in verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. The weakness of God is stronger than human strength. I love that sentence. God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. Now I want to pause here for a moment and say to those of you who are kind of sitting on the fence at the moment about Christianity, the way into the kingdom of God, the way into a life with Jesus is not to think more, and not to read more books, okay? I want to encourage you to do that. It is very good to go into life with Jesus with your eyes wide open, so that's a great thing to be doing. But that activity in and of itself won't actually get you any closer to God. The way to step into life with Jesus is to let Him reveal Himself to you. 
It's asking the question, what has God told me about himself? And so it starts as we read what God has said to us in his word about himself. What has God said about himself in his word? Perhaps you could pray a prayer that goes something like, God, I've been trying to work you out on my own. I realise that's the wrong way around now. Please make yourself known to me. You can pray that prayer as you read the Bible. It's not me using my intellect to know God, but me asking God to make his foolish message wisdom in my eyes too. One of the guys at New EAM here became a Christian by doing something similar. He was in year nine. Think about year nine. His parents wouldn't let him go on a youth camp and all his mates were on this youth camp and they wanted to go on a family holiday. And in rebellion against his parents, he burrowed himself away in his room for the duration of the holidays and read his Bible. (laughs) Sticking it to the man. And as he read, God made himself known to that young man. He's now 42. Isn't that remarkable though? The wisdom and power of God in the foolish message of the cross. And for us as Christians, it's so important for us to remember that it's not our intellect, our wisdom, our impressiveness, our UAI, our TR, our success or wealth or any of those things that qualifies us for the kingdom of God. But it's all God's work. In fact, what Paul says here is that this foolish message gathers a bunch of fools. This is where I get to call you all fools. Verse 26, have a look there. It says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were by human standards. Sorry, were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one will boast before him. So fools, I want us to see a couple of things here. First is embrace the fact that you were not called because of your wisdom or your influence or your nobility. Some, some of you may have been called possess, possessing these things already. Right? Some of you might be pretty tip-top in this world. But here's the thing. Even if that is you, you weren't actually called because of that. God's choice isn't based on, on, on those kind of worldly standards. The foolish message gathers a bunch of fools. The lowly things of this world, the despised things of this world, the things that are not, which is completely foreign to us in this world. We're used to the situation where we're always trying to put our best foot forward. You know the old schoolyard rules where the captain gets to pick the teams and they always choose the best players first and no one wants to be the last person picked on that team. We're used to that sort of society. But that's not the economy of salvation. Have a look again at verse 30. He says, It's because of him, that's God, that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. So God gathers a foolish people with his foolish message, and it has nothing to do with how successful or smart or influential or wealthy or impressive we are. It is because of God. 
God is the one who brings us into relationship with Christ. God is the one who brings us righteousness, a restored relationship with Him. God is the one who brings us holiness so that when God looks at us, He doesn't see the stain of sin, but, but He sees us as unstained and unblemished. God is the one who brings us redemption. He buys us out of our slavery to sin and the penalty of sin and into freedom with Christ. And we're to embrace the fact that we're not called because of our wisdom and influence and nobility. It is because of God you are saved. And right there is the security of our salvation. Because you can slip from wisdom. You can fall from influence. Turns out you can even get kicked out of the royal family. But our salvation is secure in God. Second thing we see here is that we see why Paul is saying this to the Corinthians. And it's pretty simple. He's dealing with this church that's boasting about its leaders, a church where they're tying themselves to the identity of one leader over another. And Paul's saying to them, this is a message of foolishness. The people of God are fools. We're not wise by human standards at all. We're not the influencers. Why would you attach yourself to a teacher and then boast in that way? Why would you do that? Why would you do that, friends, when the economy of God and salvation is not us earning position in the kingdom of God, but God, through a foolish message, calls the people to himself? And here is the wisdom of the cross. There's no room for boasting. Isn't that wonderful? Imagine if that wasn't the case, where the church would just like the world, where comparison and competition is everything, where there's no room for grace and kindness, where there's no place for the unlovely and the difficult. It would, all, it would be a place filled with social and performance anxiety, yeah? And I know that some of us come to church filled with that kind of anxiety, and that's, that's very human. But as we come, this reminds us where to come remembering that no matter what our gifts are, no matter what our place in society is, no matter what our role or function is in the church, we come to God not on our own merits, but on God's choosing. And He chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the things that are, that are the spies and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Isn't that beautiful? God flips the social rules of our world on its head. And he says, not in my kingdom. There is no room for boasting. Unless you're boasting in Christ. Have a look in verse 31. Let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Boast about what Christ Jesus has done, he says. Boast about the sufficiency of Christ's death and his resurrection. Boast about the fact that you were once out of relationship with God, but now, because of Jesus, you're in a right relationship with God. Boast about the fact that he is your holiness. Boast about Jesus, friends. And that is the Christian life. We boast in the Lord. We make much of Jesus in this city, in this region. And this is exactly what Paul made his whole life about, right? Boasting in the Lord. This is what we see in the next, se- next section in chapter 2. We see that uh, his boasting was actually done with weakness and trembling. This foolish message was preached in this 
kind of foolish way. Have a look in verse 1. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. So what doesn't Paul come with? He he doesn't come as an expert. He doesn't come leaning on his own eloquence and, and his human wisdom, but in weakness and trembling. Now that's comforting, isn't it? Doesn't that make you feel better about evangelism? Doesn't make it, that make you think, well, if, if Paul was trem- trembling, well, maybe I should have another crack at that tomorrow. And he doesn't come simply with wise and persuasive words, he just preaches Christ Jesus and him crucified and lets the Spirit do the work. Whereas other speakers of the day in Corinth, they relied heavily on rhetorical tricks and flamboyant language and they were pointing to themselves and they were promoting their own wisdom. What they were actually seeking to do is gathering disciples for themselves. But Paul was not interested in making disciples of Paul. He just spoke plainly about a king who died on a cross. He got out of the way and let the gospel do the work. The way in which Paul preached meant that when people believed, it wasn't because they were coerced by the wisdom of the speaker, they weren't won over by the manner in which he said these things, or the arguments that he put forward. No, their trust in Jesus was purely, he says, a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Now we can kind of get ourselves into trouble here and imagine that what Paul is saying is that he was a really bad preacher and he simply presented two ways to live. He drew a little diagram on the board, walked away, and mass conversion took place. That's not what he's saying, and that's not what happened. What we see in the book of Acts is a man who reasoned and argued and persuaded. If you look in Acts 18, which is where Paul first arrives in Corinth, this is what it says. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila and a a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So it's not that he was simple and basic and didn't use logic and reason carefully. It's not that he didn't possess any gifts as a teacher. But he was different to the scholars and the philosophers of the day who were looking to make disciples for themselves. And so these words are not permission to avoid passion or clear articulation of the gospel or to stop thinking about how these truths can be spoken into different cultural groups or even to stop thinking about psychology and the way that people work and are moved to change or anything like that. What he's saying here is that his words never pointed to himself. And that's because of the content of his words. Have a look in verse 1. He says, I proclaim to you the testimony about God. So when I'm here, I'm not presenting my ideas, my wisdom. I'm not giving you my top 10 tips on how to live well in this world. I'm proclaiming to you the testimony about God. Which means we're going to say things from the front in our kids' programs at our youth group that the world will shudder at. 
I don't know how you feel about that. Because I know I am wired to avoid controversy. And I think that's most of us, right? We're wired to go along with the pack. And so that's going to be hard at points. And so much harder when it impacts your kids. Wow. That is when I'm tempted to avoid controversy. But the reason we press through is because it's God's news that we proclaim. It's not human wisdom, it's not human logic, it's not my ideas, it's God's testimony about himself. And the focus of this testimony is to be the message of the cross. We need to be a cross-centred church. Have a look in verse 2. He goes on to say, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, what does this mean? Well, it means a couple of things. First, we want to make sure we keep the main thing the main thing. It's so easy to be sucked into thinking that if we just kind of tweak our message for the world and make it a little bit more palatable and a little less full-on, then somehow we'll win more people for Christ. Easy to think, easy to drift into. And so as we preach and teach, it doesn't really matter, it doesn't matter where we are in the Bible, no matter what topic we're seeking to tackle, we need to constantly be tied back to the message of the cross. We need to see the, that issue through the lens of the cross. So if you think about the doctrine of creation, right? This is a very basic doctrine of creation. All things are created by God, right? And the things that He has created for us as a Christian are to be received with thanksgiving, right? 1 Timothy somewhere, it says that. But without the cross, you see where that goes. We enjoy these wonderful creation gifts that God gives us. We have hobbies and we enjoy family and travel and great holidays and we gather up creature comforts for ourselves in this world and we give thanks. But without the cross, we can't see why we would ever sacrifice any of those things. Because they're things he's given us to enjoy in his glorious creation. Why wouldn't I be like Lindsay? Lindsay's not a Christian, but Lindsay lives 100 metres from North Boomerang Beach. He's a teacher, lives a pretty simple lifestyle, he has lots of holidays and he lives at a holiday destination. What a great life to live if you're a Christian, yeah? Living in God's creation, doing good work as a teacher, being a family man. And I can still do a bit of evangelism and go to church. Well, I could live like Lindsay, but I'll tell you why I don't live like Lindsay. And that is because life is not about this creation that God has given us. There are wonderful, wonderful things to enjoy here. But life is not ultimately about this life. Paul, among the Corinthians, resolved to know nothing by Christ crucified. And it's subtle, isn't it? Boomerang Beach is a wonderful place to live. And, and you may even choose to live there. But the cross actually demands more of my life than living just for this creation. So no matter what topic we hit, the cross needs to be central to what we preach and teach as a church. Second thing I think this means is that you need to be personally willing 
and prepared to live as a fool for Christ. If you follow Jesus, you won't be super popular or admired in this world. And so it's kind of freeing in a way, you can stop trying to be. And yes, you can use your, your, your influential status if you have some kind of influential status for good. Yes, that's wonderful. But don't be surprised when you're mocked or unfollowed or don't win the world over. And the reason is simple. We worship Jesus, a man who was crucified as a criminal. And when people see us, they'll see him. And when, when they see him, they'll go, that's stupid and weak and shameful. But Jesus says, woe to you when all men speak well of you. Blessed are you when people hate you and reject you because of me. And so, friends, let's be people who love the foolishness of the cross. Let's, let's give up caring what other people think of us and, and living to please them. And instead be freed up to speak about Christ and Him crucified. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Why don't I pray? Heavenly Father, we know that there are some wonderful things for us to hear here, but some things are hard because they offend our sensibilities, they offend our desire to be wise or influential or noble. And Father, we pray that we would be able to give up those things in this world and be <clears throat> free to stop caring what people think of us and living to please them and free to speak up about Christ and Him crucified. And Lord, as we do, we pray that people would hear that message, that you would give them spiritual eyes to see and ears to hear. And that many in Newcastle and Lake Mac region and in our, in our country today would hear this news and accept it as wisdom and power from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.